Hello and welcome to Bread. We're a newish, open-minded, spirit-filled, non-denominational church meeting in the Los Feliz area of Los Angeles. We're the kind of Christians who like the Bible a lot, but we're not going to thump you with it. We believe in the world-changing power of Jesus and the present-day work of the Holy Spirit to change things. Right now, the whole world is in a process of adapting to new realities, and so are we. Building community and sharing all this love and power suddenly seems like it might become a bit more challenging. But really, how lucky are we that we're facing all this in the 21st century? Throughout the duration of this new world coronavirus order, we'll be doing all of church online. But we're not afraid. We worship a God who is bigger than all of this, who's seen it all before, and will work all things together for the good of those who love him. We love you, and we're here. Stay in touch and enjoy this podcast. Hello, good morning. I hope you're really well. I want you to know that we tried this week to experiment with standing up preaching. The problem is, I don't fit. I'm just too big. I'm this sort of enormous thing that fills the whole screen and all you see is my midriff and no one wants that. So we're going to have to carry on with sitting down preaching. I hope that's all right by you. And we are this week into the second week of our series on Genesis. It's the story of God's rescue plan for the world. As Hannah introduced it last week, we're now carrying on. Now, Genesis is obviously about the beginnings of the world and creation. Literally, Genesis means beginnings. But actually, Genesis is mostly about the beginnings, not of the world, but of the people of God. More specifically, it's about how the beginnings of this people are integral to God's rescue plan for the whole cosmos. So it's not actually really a book about creation, it's a book about redemption. The first 11 chapters, the ones with which you're probably most familiar, the ones that are most famous, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, the flood, Noah, uh, the Tower of Babel, those sorts of things, they're not really the book. In fact, they're the introduction to the book. The book is about the following 40 chapters or so. Those first 11 are really just setting the scene. The scene is a dramatic one, of course, and it's a vital one uh, for us to understand. And the scene is this. The world is beautiful, it's wondrous, it's perfect in every way, but it has become corrupted. There is a brokenness at the heart of it between people, between families, between husband and wife, sibling and sibling, humankind and creation, and of course, most significantly, between God and man. All sorts of catastrophic brokenness. But an introduction, nevertheless, is what it is. And it acts simply as the precursor to everything that is to come. Which is partly the reason why questions about the authenticity of those opening chapters is really not the point at all. The point is not so much how the world came to be, but why it is like it is and that it is like it is. And Genesis is saying, as Hannah said last week, broken is how it is. But that was neither the plan nor how it's going to remain. The one true God, the author and creator of everything, He is so intimately and lovingly connected to his creation. He cares so unfathomably about the whole thing that he is not going to stand idly by. But he has and he is and he will continue to redeem the whole thing. To redeem it on a personal, relational, micro level, 
of redeeming unkind words and sisters pinching themselves. That's, you know, that's with reference to nothing. It's just an example that came to mind. He's redeeming all of that. He's coming to redeem all our frustrations, all our anger and selfishness towards people and all of theirs towards us, of course, too. He's coming to redeem your thought life and your mental state and your insecurities, your self-doubt. He's coming for it all. And on a macro level, he's redeeming everything else, divisions of race and sexuality and nationality and greed and moral compromise and the utter self-related way in which we've treated the planet. And cosmically, he is and he has redeemed the whole of the universe, including you and me, to himself, so that we might know him again, so that we might love him again, that he might pour out his wondrous, indescribable love of his own to us. This is the story of the Christian faith. So, as I said, today we're starting with the beginning of the beginning of the rescue plan, Abraham. And then in the coming weeks we will look at his descendants, the other great heroes of Genesis as they relate to this redemption of the world and of course how they relate to us as part of it all. So, this talk is actually about greatness true greatness. Abraham, the beginning, the one whom the Bible describes as a friend of God, the patriarch of Judaism, the patriarch of Christianity, the patriarch of Islam, the one Paul calls as the father of our faith, is of course great, undeniably great. But in talking about him, I want to talk about what it also means for us, you and me, to be great. Because you are. Whether you know it or not, whether you believe it or not, whether you feel it or not, you are great. You are the reason for all of this wonder, all of this beauty, all of creation to exist. It's all been made for you, the pinnacle of the creation. So you have a call and you have a purpose to your life. You're not just important, you're vital as am I, as is Hannah, as is every single person we see, all of us, even you, even me, as we sit around climbing the walls, wondering will this ever, ever end? Will life ever be normal again? We are all made for greatness. So before we get onto that, Nancy is gonna read from Genesis chapter 12. Thank you, Nancy. So, what makes someone great? It's dependent on two things, God's call and our response. According to the Bible and Jewish tradition, to start off with, Abraham really wasn't great at all. In fact, his father Terah was a dishonest and dubious priest who ran an idol workshop in which Abraham worked. He made idols, and Abraham lived with his family in Ur, and in Ur, his family and he would have grown up worshipping what everyone else worshipped, which was the moon god, called Nana. Which is not an important detail what her name was, but I wanted to mention it because it's what our children call Hannah's mum, Nana. From now on, she will be Moony, the moonster, Mrs. Moon, the moon god. So Abraham was there, idol-making, Nana moon-worshipping, nothing really to recommend him above any other countless people. So why was he great? Well, he wasn't. Or at least he wasn't until God made him great. First and foremost, 
What makes him great is not his descendants or his wealth or being the father of many nations. It's not even him being immortalized in the classic Father Abraham song that we tell kids. What makes him great is that Abraham is the first person post-Eden, post-Flood, post-Babel whom God calls. He's the first person to be invited in to God's rescue plan for the universe. No one else got the call. Terah, his father, not him. Not Nahor, his brother. Not Serug, his great-grandfather. Not Ryu, his great-great-grandfather. I could go on. Not Joktan, his great-great-great-grandfather. Not Peleg, his other great-great-great-grandfather. And not Lud, his ancient ancestor. Only Abraham gets the call. This is what makes Abraham great. The one thing to recommend, to recommend Abraham, in earthly terms at least, his wealth, does not recommend him. Because do you know how important Abraham's wealth is to his call? Not important at all. He wanders around the desert, and even when he reaches the land that God has promised him, he doesn't build a huge palace that he could, or a beautiful holiday home by the sea. Rather, he lives in tents. Because God hasn't called him because he's wealthy, he's called him because he's called him. Nor is it Abraham's moral character that recommends him. As I mentioned, he's there in Ur, worshipping the moon to start with, but even after that he continues, just like all of us, to be a mixed bag of compromise. He doubts God, he doubts his faithfulness, he questions things, he makes mistakes. He even tries to bypass God famously by getting on with the whole multiple descendants thing with his fertilicious servant, Hagar. Because what it means to be truly great can only ever emanate from one place. It doesn't come from what you or other people believe about you. It doesn't come from what you or other people think about your success or your fame or fortune, your relationships or your mental health, your physical health, or whether you've created hashtag great content this week. Greatness only ever comes from what one person believes about you. And he believes you're so great that you are worth giving up everything for and for calling you his own. Now, I think it's understandable to feel a little bit uneasy equating all of us with Abraham. You know, this is Abraham we're talking about. Quite a big deal. He's got that song, after all. I'm not sure I have ever going to have someone write a song about me. But it's understandable to find that comparison somewhat uncomfortable. However, it is entirely legitimate, in fact, when we take into account the whole overarching nature of the Bible's narrative arc. In fact, it's actually necessary for us to make that comparison. Because whilst God's rescue plan for the world begins with Abraham, it does not end there. This, in a nutshell, is the whole thrust of the story of the Bible. In Abraham, God chooses one person. In Israel, God chooses one nation. And in Jesus, God chooses the whole world. Which means you and me. He's called us, just like he called Abraham. 
And he continues to call us daily to be part of this rescue plan, to fill us with his power and his love to actually do it. It's a call that affects every single part of our lives, how we speak to those we love, how we speak to those who despise us, what we do with our money, how we use our gifts, where we play our, place our hope, how we spend our time, what we worship, how we vote, and what we think about ourselves. Our greatness, first and foremost, is not actually dependent on us at all, what we are, what we've done, or what we haven't done. So if he, the author of everything, thinks you are so wonderfully, importantly great, what does that mean about what we should think about ourselves? Greatness is not dependent on us, it's dependent on God's call. And secondly, of course, and importantly, it's dependent on our response. Are we actually going to believe him? How was Abraham great? Well, he responded in faith. And I think it would have been a lot easier at times for him if he hadn't. In fact, his life gets a lot more difficult because of his faith. If he'd just ignored God, he would not have had to worry about Sarah's barrenness any more than he probably already was doing. It was entirely morally and legally legitimate for him to uh, have children with a servant. He could have taken multiple wives. And presumably, having done all of that, he would have lived a relatively prosperous, happy, peaceful life at home in Ur, worshipping Nana Moon with all his livestock and gold and everything else. Yes, of course, it's sad about Sarah and her barrenness, but you know, life is full of disappointments and we just have to make the best of it. But as soon as Abraham believes, he gives himself a big problem. And I think something similar is going on now for us. We believe God is good. We believe his plan is to redeem the whole world and to make it glorious and wonderful again. But right now, that belief gives me a problem because the world seems anything but good, and where is God in the reality of the brokenness being here right on my doorstep? We had a prayer meeting this week. At one point, uh, one person talked about wanting to pray for uh, the family of a doctor from New York who was called Lauren, Laura Breen. It's the most tragic of stories. She worked in the ER of a hospital in Manhattan, and she was on the front lines of the, pande of the pandemic. Excuse me. She'd been uh, treating an inordinate number of people and working ridiculously long shifts. She'd even contracted COVID-19 herself, had two weeks off, recovered, and then went straight back to work to treat more people. She's a committed Christian. She lectured on emergency med medicine around the world, but on Sunday she took her own life. The emotional turmoil of witnessing so much death taking its ultimate toll on her. And you don't need me to say this, but suffering is real. And no doubt, we all have our own stories of the pain of life right now. Sarah, her barrenness in this story is actually the distillation of all of that. It's the representation of everything that has ever gone wrong with the world. As soon as Abraham believes God, he has a problem. If he didn't, he wouldn't. Now, there have been many valiant attempts by Christian theologians down the ages to try and deal with the problem of a good God and how can he allow suffering. 
But what unites all of these attempts is that none of them unfortunately work. In fact, the only proper way of ridding ourselves of the problem of the question of how a good God can allow suffering is to not believe in the good God after all. But I don't think we want to do that, do we? For various reasons. Not least because we actually do believe in a good God and we've met him and we know his love and his kindness and he speaks to us and he comforts us and he's risen from the dead and he's alive and he's here right now. And anyway, even if we did have a satisfactory answer for the hoary old chestnut of suffering, what solace is that for my friend who's suffering from cancer? She doesn't care where suffering came from. She doesn't care how a good God might allow it. She just wants to know that suffering will end. And the answer from the Bible is an emphatic, yes, it will. The redemption of the world has begun in Abraham. It finds its culmination in Jesus, and it continues through his people in his power, coming to an emphatic end when he returns in glory. So here we have a choice to make. We can choose to become the people of God the people he has called us to be, and we can choose to become the rescue plan for the world as he fills us with his love and his grace and his knowledge and his goodness. And we can choose to worship him and we can choose to do all of those things by believing. That is what makes someone great. In uh, chapter 17 of Genesis, God again reaffirms his covenant with Abraham. Sarah has still not become pregnant and Abraham is still pleading with God, would you please just allow Ishmael to be the heir to your promise? But God is insistent. So this is chapter 17, verse 17. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and he said to himself, will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? It says this, Genesis chapter 17, verse 17. Abraham fell face down, he laughed, and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of ninety? And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Abraham laughs at God's plan. He mocks him. And various commentators have said this is another instance of Abraham's wavering faith, but I'm not so sure. When I was at university, I remember a very poignant moment in my life. It will always stay with me. I was having a nice bottle of wine. Actually, come to think of it, it probably wasn't a nice bottle of wine. I was a student. But at the time, I thought it was a nice bottle of wine. Probably, actually, in reality, just one grade above industrial strength vinegar. You know the type of wine. Anyway, nice bottle of wine, in my mind, and with a nice, very, very nice person. And we were drinking this bottle of wine, and I remember in that moment, saying to God, I do not believe in you anymore. Goodbye, go away. And on one level, this was actually incredibly freeing because what I was doing in that moment was actually saying goodbye to a lot of the less uh, positive, actually negative, destructive parts of um, my religious upbringing. But at the same time, I was also actually saying no to faith. I am finished. And it took a number of years before I actually was able to come back and find God again, and that was actually the most extraordinary, 
empowering, beautiful moment of love and forgiveness and being found again and coming home, really. It was probably the most transformative moment in my life. But what I did at university, I do not think Abraham is doing now. He isn't giving up. He's not even wavering, I don't think. It seems to me that he's actually properly engaging with the issue. Perhaps the purest of faith never questions and doesn't mock God and his plans, but even Jesus asks him, pleads with him to change them. And I think it's one thing to say, oh, just believe. You know, you've just got to believe. It's quite another to say, just believe, having fully engaged with quite how extraordinary and weird and uh, difficult sometimes the call of God can be. And this is what I think Abraham is doing. So can I say, if you're questioning, if you're struggling with belief, if you're finding it difficult to let God in, if what's going on now is you're seeing parts of yourself that you really uh, would like to remain hidden, if you're seeing things that are not particularly welcome come to the surface, do not be discouraged. Don't give up talking to him. Question him if you must. But don't shut him out. Let him in. Because maturity in the Christian faith is not denying that bad things happen, but acknowledging them and having done so, still believing. Because he is faithful to his promises. He is Lord even in the storms of life. And this is how God responds to Abraham's laughing. Verse 19. Then God said, yes. Yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. This yes is one of the great yeses of the Bible. It's God being kind with Abraham. Yes, he says, Abraham, I know. I know how hard it is. Yes, I understand all of your questions. Yes, I care about you. God didn't have to say yes, but he does because he's full of compassion. Yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants. And as for Ishmael, I've heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of 12 rulers and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. Every good and perfect gift comes from God and there's no shadow of turning in him, which is to say he does not promise what he will not do. So he has called you. You are his and he has plans for you. You have purpose and meaning in his kingdom. Now, I'm wary of talking about specifics when it comes to calling. These are, of course, deeply personal and individual to each one of us. But I do want to end with this. When we um, first moved here, quite soon after that, I was at some event and I met uh, a few people there, including one guy who was a, an actor, a very uh, handsome, earnest, impressive uh, young man. And we talked a little bit about why we were in LA, what we'd come to do, etc., etc. We talked about church and faith and things like that. Uh, and at the end of our chat, he said, um, the thing is, the real reason that I've come to LA is because God's called me to win an Oscar. 
Now, it's not for me to talk about the rightness or the truth of that. But what I said to him was, I just wouldn't give yourself that pressure. You know, I could see after maybe a few weeks or months or years, the pressure of that, the expectation of that, that could become quite a weighty burden, quite a thing to carry around with yourself. Instead, how about this? Seek first the kingdom, to which there is no shadow of a doubt that you are called. It's a kingdom of peace and mercy and justice and righteousness and redemptive power. And the thing is, you do that, you do the kingdom thing, then if and when you win that Oscar, you know what? You won't give a monkeys about it. You will not care one little bit because what you will have is the kingdom of God, which is ultimately of infinite more value and joy. It's what we're made for. It's what life is all about. So let us all choose to be great by believing in the one who has called us and believing in his power of redemption, of rescue, of goodness for the world. In a minute, Alice is going to lead us through communion together. And I'd encourage you to take part of this in your homes, wherever you are. But first, I want to just lead a time of ministry, of asking the Spirit to meet us where we are. You might want to, in this time, just stand up or close your eyes, open your hands just as a way of being open. Just get comfortable wherever you are. But let me pray for us all as we do this. Lord, I thank you that you are rescuing the world. And I thank you that you choose us, that you love us and you call us your own. Come, Spirit of the living God, and fill us now with your presence. I pray that we would know the depth of that love for us, that we matter, that you care for us, that we're vital. And I pray that you would call us once again and fill us with your power once again, that our whole lives would be a reflection of you, your goodness and your love. Come Holy Spirit, come Holy Spirit, we welcome your presence, we thank you that you place your power inside of us, would you bring us to life, would you fan the flames of your love in our hearts, more of you Lord. We welcome you here. Amen. Have a great Sunday. We'll see you next week. So take my hands and all possessions And take my eyes and what I see Take my words and thoughts, my questions